Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome again to the Investec Economic Webcasts. I'm Philip Shaw. I'm Chief Economist at Investec here in London. Uh, this will be the last of the 2020 series of the webcast. And accordingly, what we're going to talk about today is to look ahead to what 2021 might have to offer in a number of different areas. Um, indeed, bearing in mind what sort of a year this has been directing our minds towards another place might be quite a good idea. To offer their wisdom, I have a number of my Investec colleagues with me today who are experts in their field to look at respectively equities, currencies, the retail sector and property market. So could I give a, a welcome to John Wynne Evans, John Pryor, Kate Calvert and Mark Bladen. And collective good morning and season's greetings to all of you. I'll start by making a few observations on the economy before handing over to our experts who will give us a brief analysis of what's going to matter in their areas next year. As usual, of course, we'll have a Q&A session afterwards. And to ask a question, simply type in your question using the Q&A feature on the right hand side of your screens and select Ask All Panelists. Some housekeeping points. Uh, number one, all attendees are on mute automatically. Number two, if you have any issues with the audio, please let us know. Type into the Q&A section and our AV team will be in touch with you. Number three, if you're new or you'd like to give some feedback, there'll be a survey in the webinar pages at the end where you can sign up for our economic webinar going forward uh, and also give some feedback. And last, we're recording this session and our comments do not constitute investment advice. So let's start on the economy. Uh, Perhaps unsurprisingly, we'll start with Brexit. And although we're looking at the outlook for 2021 now, the year is going to be influenced by a key event in the here and now, namely, of course, the, the trade talks between the UK and the EU. At the time of broadcasting, and this is the, the morning of the 16th of December, there was still no agreement. But after we had some fears about a no deal outturn late last week, hopes of an agreement seem to have resurfaced. So let's have a look at what the key issues are. Um, the UK government has accused the European Union of changing the conditions related to the level playing field, uh, namely what some people call dynamic alignment. And in effect, that means that the EU would force the UK to adopt its rules in the future when they change them and perhaps apply lightning tariffs if the UK doesn't follow suit there. Now, Latterly, the signs are that a less harsh arbitration system might be agreed, which is more outcomes based and where there's uh, more of a discussion and a dialogue over possible penalties. And that seems to be more akin to usual trade dispute resolution systems. On fishing, still disagreements. Of course, under no deal, uh, you'd have to make the point that EU fishermen would have no rights at all to fish in UK waters. And weekend reports have suggested that UK naval patrols will enforce those rules if it came to no deal. And for a very small sector, it has to be said that the fishing rights and the quota system is very, very complicated. Yesterday, we had news reports that there was a buzz, as they called it, around the House of Commons that a deal will be reached. Uh, although we are still nervous, that outturn is still our baseline. And I think on that, I'd just like to add a, a few individual points. I think the first one is my own view is that you, you do have to have a time limit on negotiations like this. Otherwise, you know, both sides hope that the other one will back down. And it also helps uncomfortable, though it is to be staring no deal through the barrel of a gun as it gives you more of a, a, an incentive to compromise. 
The second point, of course, is that time is running out. It is short. We don't know what the exact point is, but even if agreement is struck, it may be too late to get ratification. And that's even if EU leaders can bypass the European Parliament for now and approve a preliminary treaty. Now, that treaty will still have to be fine-tuned or in EU speak scrubbed and then translated into the other 23 European Union languages. And that means, you know, possibly that we could have a couple of weeks without a deal while those formalities are taking place. And, you know, all that will entail at the start of next year uh, with chaos at the ports, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think the final point on this is that people have lost sight on it, that even if we do get the free trade agreement, there will still be more frictions in trading with the European Union that we currently have, e.g. customs forms will have to be completed. And, and that's why in various guises, the government is urging businesses to get ready. So that's the trade talks. Now, of course, on the coronavirus, the, the, the big event over the past couple of weeks in the UK has been the rollout of the vaccine or one of them. Uh, we can't be certain on timescales, but we reckon that that should allow a pretty serious relaxation of social distancing rules at some point in the first half of next year. And that should be a significant positive for the economy. Now, of course, the direction of travel is currently in the other direction as national infection rates are rising by fairly close to 30 percent each week. London and other parts of the southeast of England have now been put into tier three. It's not impossible that um, Parts of the northwest, including Manchester, uh, moved down into two today. But, you know, overall, in terms of where we think the economy is and where it's going to be, we, we could be of a mind to dampen some of our enthusiasm about the rebound in the economy next year. So, again, to, to give you some numbers, the central view this year is GDP growth um, will contract by 11 percent. Uh, next year, we're looking for a bounce back of 7.6%. And, and given recent events, we'd say that the risk is probably that next year's upturn is not quite as strong, but it will still happen. On the political side, we keep hearing uh, stories that Boris is going to be leaving number 10 next year. It, it's impossible to tell. Um, it does seem more than a year, it has to be said, since the um, last general election, much more than a year. But there are a number of elections uh, around the world next year, Europe included. We've got German Bundestag elections in the autumn, uh, before that Dutch elections in March. But closer to home, uh, we've got local elections and more interestingly, perhaps assembly elections in Wales and intriguingly Scotland. Now, our point here is that if the SNP in Scotland re regain a majority in Holyrood, the momentum for a second independence referendum will gather steam. And you know, we note a recent poll by Servation that uh, noted 52% yes, 48% no. I, I think those percentages do ring a few bells from another referendum as well. Moving on to um, the states, of course, we'll have a, a new American administration. Um, it's now six weeks since the US elections and the Electoral College formally endorsed Joe Biden on Monday. What we hope from the administration is that we'll see fewer global trade tensions. So, for example, what we should get is some sort of negotiation with China to, unray, uh, to unwind some of the trade barriers which President Trump has um, imposed over the last couple of years. Now, we don't actually get President Biden's inauguration until the 20th of January. And meanwhile, 
the current administration is considering a fiscal stimulus package that seems to be at the moment in the order of $750 billion. And if that goes through before Christmas, that would help to alleviate some fears about a slowdown in the US and, and therefore the global economy. Now, Biden has made it clear that he would prefer to add to that next year. And his ability to do so may well hinge, I think, as we've discussed before, on Senate control. Now, the current count in the Senate, and more importantly, um, early next year, will be that there are, at the moment, 50 Republican senators, 48 Democrats. Now, there are two runoffs in Georgia, which take place on the 5th of January. Traditionally, of course, Georgia is a Republican stronghold, but Biden did actually win the state narrowly in the presidential election. So what are the polls saying? Um, very, very close, actually. Um, the latest poll average in Georgia suggests that one of the potential Democrats is ahead by 1%, the other is ahead by 2%. So too close to call, really. But as again, to say what we have mentioned before, if the Democrats win both of those seats, it's 50-50 in the Senate. And then Vice President Kamala Harris will have the casting vote. So the Democrats then would have control of the Senate as well as the House of Representatives and, of course, the White House, albeit only very narrow control in, in the Senate. So that is a whistle-stop tour of three or four of the more significant events which we think will play their role in shaping 2021 from an economic perspective. It's now time to turn to our specialists, um, John Wynne Evans, John Pryor, Kate Calvert and Mark Bladen to, to hear their wisdom. Um, to begin with, let's hear from John Wynne Evans on equities from Investec Wealth. Uh, thanks very much, Phil, and good morning, everybody. Um, I want to start today by asking you to hold kind of two thoughts in your mind, really. Uh, one is a uh, saying from the great Canadian ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, uh, who was uh, asked, you know, how is he su so successful at his game? And he said, well, I skate to where the puck is going, not to where it is and certainly not to where it's been. And uh, to that extent, I think we, you know, financial markets are discounting uh, beasts. They look forward to things that are going to be happening in the future. And uh, certainly, I think, you know, a time scale of six to nine months ahead, uh, that's where we have to look at where the puck is going to be then, uh, not where it is now. And secondly, you know, financial, financial markets as well tend to respond to the interaction between growth and liquidity. So that's another thing we want to think about is, you know, what's the growth aspect going to be as we go through 2021? Uh, and what's the liquidity background going to be? What's the policy response going to be from both governments and central banks. So when we talk about liquidity, we tend to talk, you know, mainly about interest rates, but also, uh, you know, what are the central banks doing in terms of quantitative easing, in terms of their asset purchases, um, and also liquidity within the market. And certainly, as we saw, if you cast your minds back to those very dark days of March uh, of this year, um, liquidity in the market did dry up. Uh, if you wanted to sell things, there was no one there to buy them on the other side. It was only when the central banks stepped in to provide uh, liquidity and to effectively backstop certain areas of the market, particularly you know parts of the corporate bond market, for example, uh, that uh, things were able to start recovering. And they've maintained that liquidity ever since. And as we've seen, the Bank of England has increased its quantitative easing ceiling uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, the European Central Bank uh, just uh, last week as well uh, expanded its policy. And uh, we're going to hear from the uh, Federal Reserve in the US today about what they're planning to do next as well. 
So if we look at the the now, uh, obviously, as Phil alluded to, uh, things are not particularly pretty, are they? And quite often in financial markets, we talk about the difference between, in American terms, what you call Wall Street and Main Street, which is why quite often, uh, you know, economies don't seem to be too, too in, doing too well, but the uh, stock markets are doing okay, and sometimes vice versa too. Um, and as I said, at this point, you know, you, the, the news that you're seeing you know, on the on the television, the newspapers and social media every day is poor, uh, weak economic data uh, coming out, unemployment rates rising. You're seeing uh, well-known uh, retail names uh, filing for administration and such like. And um, uh, certainly, you know, the news is going to continue poorly, uh, almost undoubtedly, over the next few weeks and months. Uh, in terms of COVID as well, uh, there's no doubt about the fact that we're going through a particularly dark spot at the moment in terms of the cases uh, and the amount of fatalities. And, um, you know, certainly part of that is to do with the seasonality that you get um, with these sorts of infections. And particularly as a rule, driven more indoors because of the cold, that is where the uh, peak of infections uh, do rise. So obviously, when we're all out and about during the summer, it was nice and warm. Uh, it was much harder to catch this uh, blasted virus. Um, so we, we, we're pretty much going through, I think, the, the trough at the moment in terms of you know economic activity uh, and in terms of COVID. But what the market's doing is looking ahead to where we're going to be, um, you know, six months away. And now that we've got these vaccines coming through and obviously people already uh, being inoculated, uh, that will start to build up uh, some of that uh, herd immunity that we've heard so much about. Uh, the seasonality will improve as we go into the spring. And of course, you've still got that big backstop of the policy uh, in terms of the fiscal response from governments around the world. Um, and by the time we get to the second quarter of next year, we're going to see some fairly strong growth numbers coming through both the GDP, uh, as Phil has alluded to on the bounce back, and even he thinks you know we might be slightly shy on that. And earnings per share, when you look at what companies are going to be delivering as well, and interestingly enough, for those companies who've kind of you know survived through 2020, uh, we get the feeling that uh, they've also been you know locking down costs through this period as well, and we might see some uh, surprisingly positive operational leverage to their earnings as we uh, go through uh, the middle of next year. From the policy response, um, I think the key thing there is that uh, all policymakers are very keen not to repeat any of the mistakes that were made after the financial crisis. Uh, so liquidity taps by the central banks will be kept open um, and fiscal tightening, any sort of austerity is not on the menu at all. Uh, so uh, in, in terms of, you know, tightening taxes early, uh, for example, or something like that, we think that is highly uh, unlikely to happen. And of course, because central banks are going to keep interest rates low, because they'll probably stop and intervene from yield, letting bond yields go too high as well. Uh, we're in an environment uh, which has been called uh, TINA, which is there is no alternative. So basically, uh, if you can't get a return from cash and you can't get a decent return from bonds as an investor, you're kind of forced to take slightly more risky investments, including corporate bonds, especially equities, uh, where you get still quite a decent dividend yield uh, in equity markets, not just in the UK, but uh, plenty of other places. Uh, around the world as well. Now, as we look forward into 2021, of course, that puck will keep on moving forward as well. So maybe by the time we get into the middle of next year, we'll have other things to worry about. Uh, one of the key things that people are concerned of uh, is a return of inflation with all this money that's been put into the system, uh, all this uh, fiscal stimulus that's there. Are we going to get a breakout of higher inflation and what that might mean? Um, I think for us, the jury's still out on that. There are still some 
you know, forces would be forcing inflation down, particularly technology, uh, uh, especially. Um, and as we saw this morning, I think uh, the inflation data came out in the UK. It was below expectations. And inflation could be quite jumpy uh, through next year because we'll find there are certain bottlenecks in the, you know, various areas of the economy. And yet there are other areas of the economy where there's going to be too much supply. So I think it'll be uh, an interesting year uh, from that point of view. But uh, say that's something more to worry about when we get to the middle of next year. Um, for now, uh, our, our feeling certainly, we've been talking about something that we've described as the BVB trade. Uh, which is the Biden vaccine Brexit trade. So those are three massive sort of uncertainties about the coronavirus, the US uh, election, and, and also Brexit, which uh, should all be firmly or reasonably firmly behind us as we move into 2021. And then when you think of uh, the enormous amount of savings that have been built up in the uh, private sector, uh, as people haven't been able to spend their money, there's certainly you know, some opportunities for some unleashing of that. People are already talking about a kind of roaring 20s uh, scenario uh, building up once uh, we're all free to spend our money again. Um, and uh, you know, that we could find some uh, very strong demand coming through on that basis. I'm sure that's something that Kate's going to talk about later. Uh, means the shape of the stock market might be slightly different uh, than it's been this year, maybe not led up by the growth stocks and the, uh, and the sort of defences and what we've called long duration stocks and possibly more for the next few months by what people might, might describe more as value uh, and cyclical and shorter duration stocks. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, for the long term, our core investment philosophy still uh, holds to buying those kind of growth compounders uh, for the longer term. And sometimes you need a little bit of a leap of imagination, perhaps, to think about how companies can keep on growing over a longer period. So we're not thinking about, you know, portfolios over necessarily always a six-month view, but, a, you know, five-year, even 10-year view. Um, I'm currently uh, reading for my Christmas leisure a book called The Future is Faster Than You Think, uh, which is absolutely fascinating about all the different new technologies which can potentially converge to create this growth. Um, and uh, I think uh, you know that's where the future lies, uh, certainly for the longer term. And um, you know we have to take a bit of risk with our investments. There's no doubt about that. Um, but uh, again, just to uh, round off with another quote from uh, the great Wayne Gretzky: uh, "You miss 100% of the shots you don't take." Uh, so basically, you always have to take a little bit of risk in life if you're going to make a return. Back to you, Phil. Thanks very much, John. Um, we certainly agree with your analysis that inflation is is going to be jumpy over next year and um yes it's it's easy to see your broadcasting from canada quoting from wayne gretzky there uh now let's turn to another john john Pryor, um who looks after corporates in the currency space it's been a pretty exciting couple of weeks in currency markets particularly in the uk john would you like to share your thoughts thanks very much phil yeah good morning everyone um yeah, you use the word exciting. I think there's probably a, a few other ways we could describe it over the last couple of weeks, but um, un undoubtedly it captures the attention and we are at a critical point. So we'll look ahead to 2021, but I'll start with trying to give a little bit of context to the key themes that we've seen this year. Um, and then as we look forward, I'll certainly try and give a, a UK and a pound centric view of where we're at and what we expect to happen. Um, I think if we start with the UK, then it's difficult to look beyond COVID um, and Brexit. Um, I, I think that the that the pound has probably actually been exposed somewhat. You've you know we, we probably could have said that a few times over the last ten years. But when you look at 
um, how sterling has reacted through 2020, um, it, investors have been left struggling for reasons to hold or buy sterling. Um, we've had a very, very uh, fragile political state. The fundamentals naturally haven't been good. And there has been um, a relatively large scale asset reallocation as well, some due to Brexit, um, but, but equally due to concerns around the longevity of, um, the, I guess, the, the, the UK's performance. Particularly something to note there, which we found is that when it comes to the fundamentals, we found that, you know, there is sensitivity with the UK economy to, to services and therefore we are that much more affected when we incur the restrictions and the lockdowns. And I think that's been in investors' minds when it comes to sterling as to trying to create a long-term rationale and hold for that currency. Um, Brexit, as we all know, and is front of mind at the moment, is not going away. Um, we are at an absolutely critical point, but throughout the year, that has underpinned um, sterling weakness. You know, there is there, every time we've seen a rally, there seems to have been an excuse or a comment to unwind that rally. And we are still at that point now. It's phenomenal to think, amazing to think we are, uh, what, 14 days away, 15 days away from where this thing should be wrapped up. And even this morning, sterling's been thrown around by a cent or so, purely based on, on comment and conjecture um, from both sides. And that probably won't stop for the next few days. Moving to, to, to the euro, I think, you know, <laughs> there's, not, there's not been many places you can say have come out the back of 2020 in in a better place than they went into it. But actually, if you look at the single currency, there is an argument to say that's been exactly the case. Uh, I think you found that from actually just the, the broader crisis management and COVID management in the zone, it got some, it got some early favour. Um, then you had the, the recovery package. Um, and, and since then, you've seen the euro really kick on. Now, what, what's interesting now and what I'll come on to later is how comfortable are the ECB with that euro strength? And we're already seeing signs that maybe actually they're not quite as comfortable with that as, uh, as we initially would have thought. And then finally, and, and the big topic is, is the dollar. Um, and, you know, it, apparently this sort of ex existential threat to the supremacy of the dollar. And we are seeing that play out at the moment. And, you know, you could write a script, you could write an essay as to the reasons um, for the theory behind that in terms of political uncertainty, uh, in terms of the, the debasing of the global system and and naturally, actually, in terms of the COVID management in, in the US. So for all these reasons, 2020 has been a year like no other. Um, and I think it's le it's probably leaving leaving some, some key questions. And I'm going to try and answer three of those questions looking ahead to 2021. Um, the first one, and for, for many of you watching, is probably the most important one, is can sterling recover? Um, now, I think it's important, you know, don't don't be fooled by looking at sterling dollar at the moment at 135 and for a second think that sterling is strong um, because it's not. Sterling dollar is at 135 because of the dollar weakness in the market at the moment. You know, the US dollar is at, uh, the dollar index is at a two and a half year low. If you look at sterling against a basket of other G10 currencies, um, it's struggling. Now, it's, it's been a terrible year. It, you could, you know, you could find the key reasons as to why that's happened in terms of the, the fundamental effects of COVID, um, the, the ongoing political, political uncertainty of Brexit, and, and actually more and more, sterling is treated as somewhat of a, of a risk-off currency. Um, so when you do get a global pandemic and when you do get a, a global deep recession, then actually sterling is going to be at the back of the queue for investors to hold and, and to buy. All of those things being said, 
going back to to what John mentioned about um, Brexit and 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 COVID um, and and Biden. Actually, there's many there's many reasons why you can formulate an argument, say that the stars may align for Sterling somewhat next year and certainly into H2 of next year. So if we think about COVID and the fact that the vaccine is, has arrived, then I think Sterling should be a beneficiary of that feeding through to the market. If we think about Brexit, as long as we don't trip up in the next two weeks and suddenly find ourselves without a no deal at the start of January, um, then, then Sterling has every right to expect to appreciate. And, and just in general, in terms of risk on markets, you, you've got to believe that Sterling will be a beneficiary of that. So for all those reasons, when I look at the Phil and the Economist team's projections of Sterling dollar at uh, close to 140 or around 140 at the end of the year, then I think that's that's pretty sensible. Um, the next question is, when you look at the, the year that the euro has had, um, has a single currency finally arrived? Now, you know, I mean, let's just take a step back for a minute and remember that uh, that euro dollar was up at 160 a few years ago and sterling euro was at 140. But when you look at its performance over the last four or five years, then for it to climb back to 120 against the dollar on the fact that there is now appetite for the euro because of some of the management in, in the eurozone, importantly because of some of the diversification away from the dollar and the euro being a major beneficiary of that, can it hold that strength? And, and the, I guess the question to that or the answer to that is going to come down to how comfortable is the European Central Bank in a stronger euro, so reliant on exports to, to, to the US in particular, can they stomach euro being up at 120 when they had such a competitive advantage when euro dollar was down at 105? Um, and, and, and the second point to that is actually probably the, the broader picture um, in terms of what will asset flows and what will um, diversification of currency flows look like. And, and as I say, I do think the euro has been a beneficiary this year of what's gone, el gone, on, gone on elsewhere. Um, and when you do look at the projections when it comes to uh, the balance sheet management of the eurozone, then there isn't too many reasons to suggest that it's going to be winning the yield battle um, or, or securing any sort of investor nerves around what they're going to be doing with their balance sheet. So I think, I think that's a, a cautionary tell when it comes to the single currency. Uh, and the final question for next year is this point around the dollar's global supremacy. Uh, and, and the question I would immediately ask to that is, well, what's the alternative? Um, you know, you, you've got th this may transpire over the long term. And I don't think you can ignore what's happened this year and the state that the US economy has found itself in and some of the flaws, the political flaws and the economic flaws that that's exposed. But to suggest that that's going to unravel in 2021, in my mind, is, is very premature. Um, I've, I've already mentioned Europe, and I think that's a cautionary tell. Um, you look to, to emerging currencies and, and, and a, an emergence of a total shift in, in the dynamic of global markets, and I think that we're on too fragile ground at the moment to suggest that's going to materialise. And you could look to China, but again, for, for the, the access of, of the global currency, I think China has still got some way to go. So for all those reasons, I think that you, know, you look at the dollar, as I mentioned, you look at the dollar index at a two and a half year low and you can't ignore there are good reasons for that. But for us to step to the point where we think that the US dollar is going to unravel and, and debase and lose its standing as the world's global currency, uh, I think it's a little bit premature. But I think we could see some sustained dollar weakness. So I guess to conclude, um, I think we should expect some sort of a return to normality next year. Uh, you know, the market will start to refocus on yield again. 
Um, and I think that we'll start to look at fundamentals again, but with with probably as uh, as much scrutiny as we have done for many years because of you know the emergence of these economies and how will their data feed through after COVID. Um, and you know the the political aspect of it continues. Phil mentioned that we've got European elections next year. Will Boris be in office? How will Biden get on? So the political aspects of currency markets will not be going anywhere. Um, but I, I think that we will see a return to normal. But undoubtedly, some of the seismic events of 2020 and the lasting effects on markets will be here to stay. Um, back to you, Phil. Thanks very much, John. Uh, a, a number of very astute observations there. I think in particular how the political landscape unfolds could, could have a, a major effect on how investors regard the dollar. Next, let's turn to Kate Calvert. Kate heads up retail research in our securities team, and obviously retail is a sector of the economy very much in the headlines at the moment. Over to you, Kate. Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. I'm going to cover off the outlook for the retail sector from a demand and cost perspective and the challenges ahead for next year. I'm going to skip the uh, current delivering Christmas um, challenging conditions as these are very well documented. So COVID has been the ultimate survival test for the industry. The landscape has been re redrawn in 2020 and we do expect this to continue to be the case um, next year. The structural shift online has accelerated as has sector consolidation and a number of high profile names have gone bust like Debenhams, Arcadia, Edinburgh Woolmill. The public quoted retailers have mainly come through stronger than the private sector retailers because generally they are less leveraged. While the industry profitability generally has been blown apart in 2020, tight cash control and subsequent better than expected performance post the first lockdown are testaments to the strength and adaptability, I believe, of many businesses. Government support has undoubtedly helped with the furlough scheme and business rates holiday in particular. But like the financial crisis, the strong are likely to emerge even stronger. So 2021 is expected to be equally as challenging for the retail industry, with demand unlikely to get back to pre-pandemic levels for many. As Phil has touched upon, the macroeconomic picture is not rosy, with rising unemployment and higher taxes expected. We do expect these to weigh on consumer sentiment and demand. Short-term visibility is particularly poor. Um, sales are definitely expected to remain very volatile. And under, underlying demand is likely to be hard to gauge for most of next year for four main reasons. Obviously, the first one is the ongoing impact of COVID-19. As Phil's talked about, it will take time to roll out the vaccine. Um, and it would be lovely to get some transparency and start to hear about the number of people being vaccinated. The second thing, which lots of people have talked about, is Brexit. Um, so after COVID, um, I do believe that Brexit is a relative breeze. The retailers have had time to plan and even had a dry run at it last year. Whenever there is a deal or a no deal, there are going to be supply issues and shortages and blockages at the ports. This is already happening. Um, in electricals and consumer electricals, electronics, for example. As I said, there is congestion at the ports and a lot of the shipping containers are in the wrong place globally. And so shipping costs are rocketing. 
cars and food will probably be the most impacted um, categories um, in the event of a no deal. Um, it is hard to stockpile food when warehouses are already full for Christmas and obviously impossible to stockpile perishable foods. The retailers are talking of a couple of months of disruption, i.e. January, February, in the event of a no deal while the supply chain sorts itself out. Um, and certainly, uh, given uh, higher tariffs and what may happen to um, FX, John Allen, Tesco's chairman, has suggested 3 to 5% food inflation coming through. The other issue in the event of a no deal is the UK government is proposing to end tax-free shopping on all items except for tobacco and alcohol. And it's also talking of abolishing um, the reclaiming of VAT for tourists. This could impact the tourism industry in the UK at a time when it really doesn't need it and disincentivize tourists from holidaying in the UK. It could also result in Brits buying less at airports and more abroad. I think the third thing um, in the year ahead will be the challenge of easy or difficult comparables from mid-March onwards, depending on what sort of retailer you are. It's going to be difficult to assess how much of the elevated demand for some players like home categories and bikes is permanent market share gain, or is it demand pull forward? And I think the final point to highlight is the fact that consumer spending is likely to shift back towards leisure, travel and experiences as soon as consumers can resume these activities. Retail, no doubt, no, retail has definitely benefited um, in 2020 from less leisure spending. So turning to the cost side, um, over the last five years, certainly the cost inflationary pressures on the retail sector have been relentless and damaging. Not only has this been driven by FX-related inflationary pressures on sourcing costs post the Brexit referendum and the devaluation of sterling, but it's also been impacted by government policy on labour, pensions and business rate. I will touch on three of the main areas of cost pressure, first being FX, most non-food retailers do source in US dollars. And with sterling around the $130 level, FX is currently turning into a tailwind as far as sourcing um, costs are concerned at the moment. The second cost is the national living wage. Um, after several years of 5 to 6% increase, it will only go up by 2.2% in April. However, the government is committed to ending low pay and is still targeting a national living wage of two-thirds of medium earnings by 2024. So this does mean another couple of years beyond next year of 5% increase to get there. And finally, there is business rates. Retailers have been on a 12-month holiday and will return to having to pay business rates from April. It is a grossly unfair tax and certainly fiscal retailers were hoping that the government would take the opportunity to reform this tax, but it hasn't, has kicked the issue down the road. So rates are still based on 2019 property prices pre-COVID, and the next revaluation isn't until 2023 at the moment. So when setting strategy, management teams certainly need to focus on agility and flexibility and giving the consumer what they want. The longer term structural trends the industry faced before COVID-19 have accelerated this year and will continue into 2021 um, and impact company strategies going forward. So the main one is the structural shift online. Without doubt, digital usage has increased. Many traditional retailers saw their online businesses at least double 
over the lockdowns. And when this pandemic is over, there will have been a step change in online penetration, we believe towards 40% or so, compared to 30% pre-COVID. This has implication for business models and also for the retail property market, which has seen a seismic shift. Retailers are being forced to rethink the composition of their space as some locations will now be unviable as footfall patterns will change. So lower footfall, it should lead to lower rents in some locations, but some locations could well benefit. For example, if people continue to work at home, more local locations may well benefit. The other trend is this market consolidation. This has continued at pace as more distressed retailers fall into administration. Certainly M&A opportunities will come up and some players are looking to acquire brands um, and attractive customer databases. Other trends um, out there, which were certainly well established pre-COVID, um, are things like the growth in the discount value brands. Wholesale channels are likely to shrink further and will need to go um, direct as the natural channels for wholesale brands historically have been independents and department stores, and there are far fewer of these around today. Brands are expected to take back more control over their brands and rebalance their routes to market away from wholesale. Um, and we would also expect to see more partnerships and collaborations, which are becoming more critical as companies look to leverage fixed assets and improve their returns. And finally, there's the environmental credentials, sustainability and ethical sourcing. These are more hot topics, I would say, for corporates in the stock market currently, rather than the consumer at the moment. But consumers are more inclined to question where their goods are coming from. And those who are more ethically conscious tend to use brands with similar values. So a failure to address ethical trading standards but governance issues can be costly. And this has been exemplified by the volatility we've seen in Boohoo share price in recent months. So in summary, we are expecting another challenging year ahead for retail. There is a lot going on, much of which is beyond the control of the retailers. The industry will continue to evolve. Um, and certainly for me, key will remain cash, agility, flexibility and innovation. We certainly expect the strong to get stronger and for new innovative business models to come through. So with that, I will hand back to Phil. Okay, thank you very much for your very well-rounded and realistic assessment of, of the retail sector. Last and very much not least, uh, let us now turn to Mark Bladen, who will share some of his insights on the property market. Mark. Thanks, Phil, and good morning, everyone. So I thought I'd start off with a, a sort of quick look back uh, on the last um, year, which has been a year sort of like um, no other, certainly in my uh, 25 years as, as a sort of property lender. I think if we if we start in sort of quarter one um, of, of of 2020, you know, whilst there was the sort of continuing noise and backdrop of of, of Brexit, it was a pretty sort of normalised market. Uh, there were a number of sort of debt providers. There was a range of sort of leverage um, and, and plenty of sort of choice for um, um, borrowers to 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 sort of match up um, debt debt with their equity. Um, then obviously all that changed um, around about March 23rd um, when, when we went into sort of full lockdown and the implications on that um, on, on the property sector were quite startling. Um, we were seeing uh, sites shut down uh, almost overnight as, as construction firms were, were sort of pulled off. There were a lot of sort of implications on, on, on sort of fixed price bill contracts, um, insurance of sites that weren't being sort of managed uh, 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 actively. Um, the, 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 
a disparity between how it was being handled in the different sort of regions. So Scotland took a much sort of tougher uh, line on, on, on what, who, who could get onto site and couldn't. Um, and then obviously as well, uh, the, the whole world was shutting down. So if you were an investor with offices or retail or leisure, you know, th those, those um, buildings were being, you know, compelled to shut through the sort of government guidelines. Um, so for us as a, um, a, uh, a lender, you know, it was really that Q2 was really a sort of wait and see how are things going to play out, what sort of level of distress were our borrowers going to see, and and that this point is probably worth pointing out. I do think that the government acted um, quite responsibly and quickly. Um, you know, they, they put in place a sort of furlough scheme and they arranged for the C-bills uh, scheme, uh, which uh, banks and, and, and clients were able to sort of access. And I think that helps sort of stabilize the market quite significantly. If we sort of roll on to the end of um, Q2, um, so around sort of June, July, August of, of, of this year, I think that's when we started to see uh, um, both confidence among investors and, and, and lenders that, that that, that there was a sort of a bit of an end in sight that the market was going to start to loosen up again. And certainly for us, we were able to pick up um, loans that had either um, stopped that were actually well progressed in, in legals and execution or had been through credit and had been approved. And we were able to sort of execute and, and complete on those, those deals for our clients. We were also starting to see around that time, early Q3, uh, a bit more sort of um, deal flow come through. Um, again, as investors decided um, that, that they had the confidence to start investing again. Um, and I would say where we are sort of Q4 now, whilst the sort of lockdowns keep happening at various levels of, of, of intensity, we are starting to sort of come back to a bit more of a sort of normalized uh, market. So I suppose the, the next question is, you know, what sort of impact has this had on, on lenders and their appetite? And a couple of points I would make here is, you know, we, we shouldn't underestimate um, the impact uh, on the high streets of, of the sort of coronavirus, where we've seen, um, you know, our competitors, I suppose, have to devote whole teams um, to help with C-bills uh, and with SMEs. Um, and that really has restricted um, the level of debt available um, certainly for property finance um, over the last sort of uh, six to nine months. The other thing is, you know, we've seen sort of leverage come in. Typically, senior debt is around 65% um, LTV for investment lending, uh, so loan to value, or 65% uh, loan to cost for, for development lending. You know, I would say that's come into at least 60% now uh, for some sectors, maybe even 55. And again, much fewer players than, than we would have seen at the, at, the, um, at the beginning of the year. And then the impact on pricing, I think pricing on, on, on fees has probably gone up by 25 to 50 basis points and probably something similar uh, on, on margins. So that's sort of the last year and the impact on, on, on the lenders. Um, next would be, it would be useful to just sort of run through some of the main sort of sectors in property. Um, and I would sort of break those down into three. Uh, firstly, those that, that have proved themselves to be very resilient. Um, those that uh, uh, the future still remains a little bit uncertain, and then those where uh, it's been an incredibly difficult time, but where maybe there are opportunities um, in the future. So if I start with the sectors that have been resilient, I think that can be really summed up quite neatly in three words, and, and those are beds and sheds. And what I mean by that is, it's, it's certainly on the bedside, uh, the, the, the winner in, in my view has been the sort of growing build to rent sector. Um, so this is where institutions build large scale buildings of say 250 to 500 uh, uh, dwellings um, for purposely for rent. And these buildings are designed for, for that. Um, collection rates throughout the sort of corona uh, uh, virus period have been in the, in the sort of mid to, to high 90s. 
um, which is really driving uh, a lot of uh, uh, increased interest from uh, institutions um, in, in that sector. The second sector, which is, has similar characteristics, is, is purpose-built student accommodation. Um, might be a little bit le less well-known for those outside of the property uh, in industry, but certainly a, a, a growing and strong sector. Typically trades around £5 billion um, of assets uh, a year, again, amongst institutions. Interestingly, we saw this year the largest ever real estate transaction, um, which was a, 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 a purpose-built student accommodation um, portfolio, uh, which, which sold for $4.7 billion um, from IQ, IQ Goldman's to Blackstone. And what was interesting about that sale is that it was agreed uh, pre-COVID, and there were a number of other bidders, uh, as well as Blackstone, and actually completed at full price um, uh, uh, in, in towards the end of, of sort of quarter two. So whilst we were still very much in the pandemic, and I think that just really underpins um, institutional appetite for these, these we, we call them sort of sticky income assets, where, where the tenant base is very granular, um, where, where the income is, is repeatable, and where, where, where income tends to rise, um, rental rises about two to three percent a year. Um, final, finally, on the sort of bedside, um, Resi for sale, obviously, you know, it, it, the, the usual national obsession um, in, in the UK. Um, interesting, you know, we, we, we saw that during lockdown, um, you know, there was at least sort of six months of, of, of demand that just sort of built and built and built. And I think when those restrictions um, were lifted, that, that was a key driver in why we've seen um, uh, price rises um, pretty much across the country in, 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 in residential. And then obviously as well, as people uh, on the back of, of, of having to sort of sit at home, perhaps in a one or two bedroom flat in, in, in central London, started to consider the merits of a, a, a sort of a, a house with a garden, maybe in a sort of commutable hometowns um, uh, uh, county. Um, so that's the bedside of, 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 of beds and sheds. And then sheds, obviously, you know, as, as there's been a, an increasing movement um, from sort of uh, high street uh, um, and out of town retail onto online. Again, the coronavirus just hugely accelerated that. So, again, institutional appetite, very strong for um, uh, uh, logistics assets, last mile sort of um, um, sheds uh, to the point where you would now see a, um, a logistics uh, a shed in, in prime central London, um, probably yield, uh, trading on a yield of about three and a half percent, which would be very similar to, to, to what a sort of um, prime rental would, would trade at, which is which is quite, quite something. A bit of a question there as to is, is so much demand chasing so little supply and, and driving those yields down um, and perhaps perhaps further than they should go. So those are the sort of very resilient assets. I would say that the, the key uncertain um, real estate sector for me remains um, offices. Um, whilst there's no doubt in my mind that, that there is still a very large part um, for, for, in property and investors' portfolios to play for offices, I really do think there's going to be a reassessment as to um, what split will uh, workers want to have between working from home, which I think we can all agree has been an incredible success, even if unwanted, you know, it just works. You know, people are able to trade. Um, we are able to have these kind of panels um, just as if we were in the office. Um, so I think my, 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 my personal view is, you know, over the sort of next six to nine months, what we'll see is a sort of migration back into the office, but I don't think it will be as it was in, in, in the last year or the last sort of three to five years. And I think we'll probably end up with something which is more of a hybrid, uh, maybe even 
as simple as sort of 50-50 as workers enjoy the benefits of, of, of working from home, but still want and need a, a sort of central base where they can come in, where they can meet with uh, colleagues and, 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 and clients. And it may be that that kind of more flexible working space um, reinvigorates the, the, the sort of um, that what what was uh, you know an already sort of rapidly growing flexible working um o o office environment uh finally then the, the difficult sectors um you know th this isn't really going to surprise anyone but it's you know the leisure and hospitality have been hit incredibly hard um be because they've sort of borne the brunt more, more than anyone else in in terms of being locked down um and, as has sort of um re retail um and kate sort of covered that i suppose you know what i would say there is um Whilst I see perhaps a, a, a more medium to long term change in the way in which we sort of use office space, I, I, I do see um, as COVID hopefully becomes a bit more of a distant memory um, in, in, in 2021, a, a much stronger rebound into those sort of leisure and, and hospitality and, and indeed perhaps some of the retail sectors. So I, I, I do I do. I do think and question whether there is a, actually a strong buying opportunity um, now, as some of those sectors may have been um, oversold. Uh, next, I suppose I will just sort of look forward, you know, to 2021. Um, Investec and, and, and certainly me, myself and in the property team, you know, we've been lending quite defensively over the last sort of year and, and even before before then, uh, because of the uncertainties in the market around Brexit and then COVID exacerbated that. For me, the big sort of um, turning point will probably be, you know, Q1, end of Q1 um, in, in 2021. So I think there's a number of things there um, that, that will give us more certainty on which way the market is going to go. I think we would have had the benefit of, of a quarter's trading and, and sort of various sort of economic data coming in, uh, regardless of whether it's a deal or, or a no deal, and we know sort of how impactful that is. That, that has been, I think, you know, at that point, we'll have seen significant deployment of the vaccine. And again, we'll have a clearer line of sight as, as to are we returning to a more normalized world or will there be further lockdowns required? And I think at that point, that's when the um, sort of furlough scheme uh, is, is due to unwind. And we'll, we'll, have, we'll be able to see then a bit more um, what impact that will have on, on unemployment. Um, so. As I say, I still think uncertainty in Q1 next year, but um, I'd like to think by Q2 to Q4, um, you know, we'll see a sort of return to normalisation um, and that will impact on, on, on most sectors and, and, and um, I think the, the banks and, and other sort of institutional lending appetites. Finally, if, if I just sort of look at, you know, where do I see the risks? Um, I, I always get very worried and, and nervous about any possible sort of change in, in legislation. You know, I think the government sometimes underestimates that property is a long-term asset, that, that this investment decisions and indeed investment decisions are often made with a view, you know, a sort of three to five year view, um, certainly in development, you know, building of, of, of an office or, or, or retail or, 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 as I said, built around PBSA, you're looking at sort of 18 months plus about another year plus of stabilization and what is really unhelpful is when the government sort of changes things like help to buy SDLT taxes um, you know the rights of overseas investors to, to sort of purchase when, when money has already been committed um, I do think um, 
you know, we, we, we haven't possibly seen the impact of, of, of what a sort of hard or, or a very thin deal could do on, on construction costs um, as, as sort of freedom of movement continues to be sort of uh, restricted. Um, although I, I, I am and have always been a, a sort of big fan of, of the innovative nature of, of sort of uh, construction firms. Um, and I think they'll probably sort of find a way around that. Um, also, uh, one final point, um, you know, on, uh, coming back to the sort of resi for sale market, as I said, there was a number of reasons I think have been driven, uh, been driving increased price rises. I do think with with perhaps a, a slight uptick in, in unemployment next year and with, with a, a more sort of return to normalization, we could see uh, we, we could see the the residue for sale market uh, easing off slightly, although I wouldn't expect to see uh, a sort of cliff edge fall. Um, but I think long term, uh, it, it, the indications we're getting from main, most of the major real estate agencies is, is, is that, that it will probably uh, grow over the sort of the, the, the medium term. By that, I mean sort of three to five years. So those are my thoughts. Um, back to you, Phil. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, some fascinating stuff in there with some big numbers. Um, and I must admit, I've not heard the phrase uh, beds and sheds before. That's a new one for me. We've got several questions that have come through. Please do do add to them. Um, first one is on currencies, um, and it's one for John Pryor. Um, John, you mentioned the house view that um, we're looking for sterling at 140 against the US dollar. I think that's predicated on 125 um, euro against the dollar, which gives us, I think, 112 um, euro against sterling. What, what, what are you hearing um, about the risks to that? And, and, and what are your thoughts about the, the general um, movements and, and what could really hit the currencies? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Phil. Um, I think we need to look past the next three or four weeks to try and give a more balanced view on that. I think that let's assume for a second that we will get to some sort of a deal um, on Brexit, you know, that's the that's the, the house view, Phil, that's been your view, and, and I think we, we stick with that. So if that's the case, it come, comes back to my point a little bit, that after a very pretty torrid year for sterling, then you look at 2021 and, and you probably look at it with a with a sensible dose of optimism in that you'd expect the fundamentals to improve for the UK. Um, you would expect um, asset flows to um, either, you know, certainly divestment from the UK to to slow down, if not turn around, because there's a little bit more certainty. Um, and and you would certainly expect there to be a to be a, an upside effect from from uh, the vaccine and, and fewer restrictions and, and fewer lockdowns. The with all that considered and the fact that we I mentioned when I spoke, that I think the, the euro strength is probably a cautionary tale. And, you know, there is um, I think there's probably uh there's a little bit of um I, I think the the call for the dollar to weaken is slightly premature then i think you look at both sterling sterling dollar and as as we mentioned so therefore you know we're off a base of 135 at the moment which might be a bit toppy after the last couple of days but you look at that and think it's got every chance of of creeping up to 140 and and sterling euro you mentioned 112 and i think you know that's there's maybe upside on on that based on the fact that the UK's got so much catching up to do and the pound's got so much catching up to do. But look, the, the risks to that are the next couple of weeks. You know, that's going to be a first round knockout blow for 2021 if we don't get a deal. And um, we are, you know, as Kate mentioned, there are there's mayhem at the ports. There is a 
flight to safety. Um, there is a um, there's an exodus from from Sterling. You know that resets all of those expectations for next year. Um, and the other element to it, which we haven't spoken too much around, is what will the Bank of England and and the Monetary Policy Committee do, do to try and help and navigate through 2021. So there are still calls and 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 some rationale to say that we may see negative rates. Uh, and if that were to materialise, then then you actually that would hit sterling. Um, so a lot of that's going to come down to how is the UK economy going to recover in the first half of the year? Um, so let's assume for a second we don't see negative rates. Hence, we see that appreciation in sterling. But as I say, the risks are uh, a no deal in the next couple of weeks and a slower than expected recovery, which could bring negative rates in the UK, which will hinder any sort of expectation of a rally in sterling in 2021. Thanks, John. That's a segue to another question, which I think is probably directed towards me, which is that uh, what are your thoughts about negative rates working in the euro area and, and interest rates views in general? Um, we know in the UK that the Bank of England is trying to introduce negative rates into its toolkit, but there seems to be a certain reluctance, particularly that the bank insiders, if you like to call them that, are uh, very hesitant about taking rates below zero. If you listen to the ECB, um, it insists that negative rates have been a success, but they realise there's a rate beyond which probably does more harm to the economy than good. So um, I think our view is that with a recovery in, in, in sight in 2021, that the Bank of England need not deploy negative rates. Quantitative easing is, is still the marginal tool for now, but we cannot rule out um, rates going below zero. Um, and in the interest of trying to get a few more questions um, answered quickly, there's a question, again, I think this is towards me, what are your views on the wealth tax that the government is hinting at? Uh, there was a study at the start of last week suggesting that a wealth tax could raise over 200 billion and make some impact on, on of course, the national debt. I don't think it was the government suggesting that. And my, my own personal view is I'd be very surprised if a Conservative government introduced a wealth tax and um, that said um, just to revisit a theme that we've spoken about before i would not be at all surprised however if we get a rise in capital gains tax announced at the budget whenever it, it takes place probably in march but I, i'd be very surprised to see a, a tory government launching a wealth tax um question for mark um what are your views on rents over 2021? I, 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 suppose it, it, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to depend depend on the sector. As I said, I think that the, the one that the the sectors that I, I identified as uh, uh, being resilient, um, PBSA and, and built to rent, you know, they typically t tick up at about two two to three percent increase um, per annum, um, and, and I think. Uh, even in 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 2020 that 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 will still sort of be be consistent uh, logistics um you know cracky we 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 started lending um on 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 these sort of sheds back in sort of 2013 when when home counties rents were at about 9 pound 
uh, per square foot there now up at sort of 12, 12.50. Not sure there's much more room for, for, for those to, to, to grow. Um, central sort of London offices, um, I, I, I wouldn't see, um, actually, I, I would probably expect them to remain stable. Um, it's hard to see where, where sort of growth is going to come from, as, as I said, where, because we could see a slightly different repositioning of, of how people sort of interact and perceive um, office space. But let's also not forget that, you know, certainly, you know, London is still a, a, a you know, a, a global city with, with sort of close to 10 million people, you know, li living there, you know, huge sort of infrastructure. Um, and yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think I saw an article this morning that said, you know, L London still exports more financial services um, than any other country in the world. So um, yeah, I, I suppose stable there. Um, I, I'd be cautious, um, perhaps uh, more regionally um, on, on sort of office space. Um, Okay, thank you very much. Um, I think we're going to run slightly over time because we've got two more questions. Um, one is for Kate and, and, and one's for John Wynne Evans. Kate, do, do you think that COVID-19 has um, sounded the death knell for the bricks and mortar retailers? Um, thanks. for. Um, no, I don't believe so. Um, people do like shopping. Um, it is a social event. Uh, certainly town centres do need to be repurposed and become um, more of community hubs. But I mean, I think physical retailers um, will survive and certainly I think they, they do need to change in terms of becoming far more experiential. Um, they are still very much a key route to market, particularly for things like click and collect. Um, so I think the key thing is, uh, you know, customers want a seamless shopping experience. Um, and uh, as a result that Sometimes they want to pick their parcels up when they're at the office, to be honest. Um, and the problem in London is if anything gets left, um, it gets nicked. So, um, no, I think there there is a place for physical retail um, and I can see, see it continuing, but the environment has to evolve. We've had a lot of very mediocre retailers um, who have sort of been kept alive for a long time. Um, and um, that is now changing. Fantastic. Um, thank you, Kate. And the final question is to John Wynne Evans, and that is, would you invest in China? Uh, well, in a word, yes. Uh, I, I won't just leave it at that, though. Um, I, I think there's still enormous opportunities in China. I mean, obviously, there are questions about, uh, you know, social practices and governance and what we're seeing going on with the Uyghurs in northern China at the moment and the cotton fields and these sorts of things. So uh, there's always that sort of ESG angle when you come to there. But in terms of the growth that's potentially still available in China, uh, there's still an awful lot to come. Uh, the government is sort of changing its policies to a certain degree from kind of you know, stacking everything up cheap and exporting it to the rest of the world to more domestic consumption. And uh, I, I think, you know, I think many people will be surprised how far ahead in many respects China is in terms of its technology relative to a lot of the rest of the world and the adoption, um, you know, and so much of you know, financial retail and stuff like that. They have gone straight to online uh, in many respects and bypassed an awful lot of the kind of, you know, bricks and mortar uh, angle of it. So uh, there's a huge kind of um, sort of you know, demographic democratic access to uh, all of those uh, particular technologies. And I also think within a country of, you know, over a billion people, um, there are always going to be opportunities for growth businesses uh, within that. If you think of some of the great businesses we've had in the UK, <clears throat> which have managed to grow 
uh, you know, in a population of 60 or 70 million, you can just imagine what's, what's possible uh, in a much larger population. And, you know, when you consider, uh, again, now the Chinese stock market is the second largest in the world by market capitalization. And yet, you know, it only in sort of global portfolios, it's still only a few percent maximum uh, for most people. One feels over a period of time, uh, there's only going to be more and more capital allocated to that particular country as well. So um, certainly, you know, we, we think there's still plenty of opportunities uh, for growth uh, in China for the long term. Fantastic. Thank you very much, John. And that brings our session to a close and indeed um, the last in the series for at least 2020 of our economic webcasts. Um, just like to thank all of our panelists for their contributions today and of course to all of you for participating. Um, wish you a good Christmas, stay safe and we'll see you in 2021. Goodbye.